Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special live Futures Festival edition, we'll be talking with Brian Lennon about the Fab Lab and cars powered by fish and chips. But first up, here's Jackie Hayes with The Week in Review. Thank you, Ian. Well, it turns out that elephants are a lot smarter than we gave them credit for. And in some cases, they're even smarter than humans. Than humans. Yep. Because it turns out that elephants can actually count. So a researcher over at the University of Tokyo in Japan, Naoki Iri, I believe is how you pronounce the name, um, (laughs) basically what she did was she got uh, an elephant and had two buckets. And she... In one bucket, she put one apple, and then the next bucket, she put three apples, and then she put five apples in the first bucket and three apples in the second bucket. Now, if you know how many apples are in each of those buckets, you can count as well as this elephant, because the elephant figured out that there, that there were six apples in one bucket and seven apples in the other bucket and, or, and went for the bucket with the most apples. Ah. And that's quite, you know, that's quite a complicated mathematical task, really, when you think about it. Well, primates other than humans, can't do that. Really? I believe chimps can't count over three. Aha. Uh-huh. Like there's many. Well, I actually put together a little bit of a list of animals that can count, and salamanders and pigeons are both on that list. So I do find it surprising that chimpanzees aren't. But, hey, who I'm knows? Not, I'm not certain. I've, I've met humans who can't count above three, so there you go. Um, but basically, um, these elephants could get it, I think, right 90% of the time. And what's really cool about that is that it's quite a close number, like seven versus six is, you know, something that's quite hard to separate. Whereas I think when we talk about salamanders and pigeons, that what we're actually talking about is they can tell the difference between two and 15, which is quite a big difference. Difference between six and seven is pretty clever stuff. But Especially see, when you're adding it at different rates and they're all yeah. going in different times. And Naoki, uh, my buddy from Japan, she said that sometimes she couldn't even keep track of, track of it and she didn't know how many apples were in there, yet the elephant was all over it. Fantastic. So they've got excellent memories. They can identify themselves in the mirror and they can paint and now they can count. And they can ferment to make alcohol. There's no end to the wonder. They'll take over. <laughs> yeah, they will. Elephants are taking over the world. You heard it here first. Um, and the other interesting piece of news this week was that a man's face will tell you how aggressive he is. And uh-huh. not just in how he's looking at you. You know, like if his eyebrows are knitted together, he might be angry. But uh, over in Brock University in Ontario, um, Cheryl McCormack looked at the width-to-height ratio of uh, some ice hockey players. So width to height ratio, we're talking people with round faces here. We're talking face width to height. Yes. Right. Yes. Sorry, sorry, it's all in the face. So basically, are they a moon face or a horse face is the question that we're after right now. Um, And it turns out that um, basically, if you have a wider face, if you're a moon face, then you are 
you know, linked to higher levels of testosterone and it turns out that you are slightly more aggressive. So next time you're looking in the mirror, just uh, go and grab a ruler and measure your width to height ratio of your face. Who knows what it will reveal. And just don't ask that question of the hockey players. Because <laughs> otherwise you'll get beaten up. Yes. That's all the advice from This Week in Review. Thank you, Jackie Hayes. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. Now, the Hot Futures Festival was held on the noisy main street of Newtown. In the background, you can hear aircraft, trains, buses, trucks, and people passing by. So often, you'll hardly notice. So we're at the Live Futures Festival in Newtown. Uh, Brian Lennon, I'm from Melbourne. Got a fairly varied history in academia and other places. And I'm interested in enabling technologies, really, and the environment. And I've been involved in all sorts of interesting projects. A couple of the current ones are 3D printing and fabrication technologies. We're seeing here in front of a 3D printer. Yeah, it's called a Fab at Home machine. Uh, it comes out of research at uh, Cornell University in the United States and the MIT Centre for Bits and Atoms. The people involved, uh, Neil Gershenfeld at MIT, uh, and uh, Hod Lipson and uh, Evan Malone at Cornell. So what can you make with a 3D printer, um, the Fab at Home? 3D printers are quite common in industry for what are called rapid prototyping. You can make uh, components, design components on computers and uh, there are industry people who will make those components so you can have a look at them or show them to your clients and they can then have a, a sense of how that would work and whether it really suits what they want. But up until now, the technology has been really too expensive for people at home to do much with. Uh, the idea behind the MIT people and the Cornell people is that it's time that we started putting together the story where the general population can start to uh, access these sort of technologies. The MIT story was the first one. It's, uh, Neil Gershenfeld put together a, a unit called How to Make Anything and he expected 10 people and got, I think, something like 400 who wanted to make learn how to make nearly anything. And that led to a, a research initiative and also a third world initiative where they built what they called fab labs, fabrication laboratories, which were equipped with uh, computer-aided, computer-controlled machines, you know, laser cutters, milling machines, all those sorts of things, that uh, basically run off uh, people's designs. People don't have to come up with all the... Uh, technical expertise to actually machine all these things that computers do them all for them. Uh, Neil has written a book called Fab um, where he sees this is the beginning of the third industrial revolution. That uh, as we had a digital revolution started with the Altair 8800 where people could, you know, tech heads could build their own personal computer. At that period people were saying, well, why would anyone want a computer? <laughs> This uh, isn't too far past when the IBM CEO was asked what he thought computers were going to do in the world. And the IBM CEO said he saw a worldwide market for computers of five. And of course, 
the Altair 8800, once the hardware was there, people started writing software for these sort of machines and then the software drove the hardware and then the hardware drove the software and that feedback loop has been going on ever since and machines become much more capable and the software becomes much more capable and they, they're pushing each other's development dramatically. So the capability of the machines is doubling every, under Moore's law, every 18 months to two years. And a doubling time of that period means that the capacity of these machines has become extraordinary compared to what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And in the next uh, 15 or 20 years, they will be up there at the same sort of uh, capacity as the human mind, the human brain. So we've got a very interesting process taking place. Well, Neil Gershenfeld thinks that the same process will occur with personal fabrication, that now we're starting to get machines into the hands of the general public, that software and hardware will drive each other to a place where uh, local, localised, decentralised manufacturing will take the place of the massive centralised manufacturing of the second industrial revolution. Which, uh, he sees that what will stream around the world won't be the raw materials and the finished products, but the data streams that tell you how to make them, tell the machines how to make them, um, with all the obvious you know, ecological advantages of that, that you don't have to ship all the materials backwards and forwards across the world, getting made and fabricated to some extent in one place and then going on to another, etc., until they end up probably back where they started. You know, Like all our iron ore comes back here from Korea via China and via somewhere else. You know, um, we can, at personal fabrication level, suddenly your own garbage dump becomes a source of raw materials, suddenly all sorts of other very cheap materials come about. Well, this machine here, the 3D printer, the Fab at Home machine, you can make, there's about 20 materials you can use and it basically is a little machine that controls X, Y and Z axes and it will deposit uh, uh, silicon rubber or uh, nylon or some metals, low melting point metals and it will print them dot by dot just like a dot matrix printer only three dimensionally so you can make three dimensional objects out of them. Um, you can see the videos of a speeded up version of making uh, you know, a watch band and making a, uh, a squeeze bottle and things like that. You can. This is early days. Um, there are plans that some people at MIT are doing to to have a printable uh, cell phone. So for a few dollars, you set up your machine, the software streams in, and you load up your syringes, and it prints your mobile phone. Wait, including the circuitry. Including all the circuitry. Yeah. You just lay, lay down the circuitry just like you do in different in layers of, of metal as you do the circuitry of the... End up with a disposable phone. Yeah, disposable phone or a very, very cheap phone. I, I think the exciting story about the uh, fabrication labs is that uh, after Gershenfeld discovered the, the popularity of this among sculptors and all sorts of people who uh, you wouldn't normally expect to want to run all this computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacturing machinery is that they started installing these full fab labs with all this machinery in third world countries, like South Africa, India, Costa Rica, Ghana. Um, and what they've uh, found is that that decentralised manufacturing facility enables people in those countries to build local solutions to their problems. So one example is a, a group of farmers in India uh, who... Uh, 
needed to measure the butterfat content in their milk, what the quality of their milk is, uh, is measured by the butterfat content. And the machines to do that cost many tens of thousands of dollars and there's no way they could afford it. But at the fabrication laboratory in India, they, they took a piece of uh, an old CD and used it as a diffraction grating and aimed a webcam at it and built basically a spectroscope that could, for about 50 bucks, which could measure butterfat content in milk. And so they had a solution to their problem, their local problem, from the fab lab. Um, and a, another story is uh, one of the fab labs in Norway, uh, a group of Sami herders from the north of Norway turned up, they were reindeer herders, and they needed a way of keeping track of their herds during difficult times of the year when they couldn't keep track of them. And in the fab lab they designed and made, with these machines, uh, collars for their reindeer to keep track of their reindeer herds. It's, it's, nobody is going to build a, a factory in Shanghai to produce millions of reindeer collars or, you know, $50 butterfat content measurement machinery. It's, uh, the fabrication labs uh, are the beginnings of something quite dramatic and uh, Gershenfeld says he thinks it's the start, as I said, the start of the third industrial revolution where manufacturing will become distributed into the communities around the world and people will use them to make their own solutions to their local problems. I'd like to get into one myself. I'd like to build one here in Australia and get, our, our one, get one going here. So far I've got these these two fab at home machines, the 3D printers. There are three of them in Australia at the moment. I've got two of them and there's a, a third one at the University of Adelaide Engineering School. There might be more lately, but that was the last I heard. And I've also got a couple of 3D milling machines and scanning machines which will also contribute to this process. I hope eventually to build a full-scale fab lab here. Uh, the people at MIT are very, very helpful and they'll be very, very helpful in setting it up if I could get the funds for it, a couple of hundred thousand dollars or something of that order, um, and see how it goes. Um, I know it'll just get swamped. I'll just know it right from the start. Well, it can grow. Well, I think it can grow. I mean, one of the projects that I've been interested in, I've always been interested in energy. My background is a mathematician and energy is always obvious correlate for anybody who thinks about these things with things like standard of living and health and all the rest of it. Um, how do we tap energy? Well, solar energy is obviously really cool. Um, but there's a process, a, a group in uh, a company in California earlier this year, 2008, um, announced that they had just started production at their uh, solar cell factory. It's called Nano Solar and they're producing solar cells at one-fifth of the current cost of solar cells. And that brings it down to somewhere where it's comparable to the cost of uh, fossil fuel electricity. What I find interesting about that is that if they can do it, they, use, they, use, they don't use these really high-tech you know, vacuum deposi deposition methods and uh, extremely expensive pure silicon. They use a paint-on method. They basically run a sheet of aluminium foil through this long machine which alternatively paints different materials and circuits on the, on the thing and they end up with a solar cell that's quite manageable processes for about one-fifth of the current cost. Now that immediately has me, as, as I'm very interested in doing these things at home, um, hmm. if I could get into a fabrication lab, get on top of these processes and in a fabrication lab build a machine that will make solar cells say for one-twentieth of the current cost 
suddenly the whole game would change. And if that technology was everywhere on the planet and people were making their own solar cells, we would have a very interesting result. And I'm sure there are dozens of other possibilities for a fabrication lab which would make a qualitative shift in, in uh, how we deal with our problems on the planet, you know, climate change and energy independence and all the rest of it. I think we, we really need to come, out, come up with some rather interesting left of field solutions and I think they are there and a fabrication lab is one of those enabling technologies which I suspect will free up that creativity in people and they will come up with those sort of ideas and, and come up with the methods of actually actualising them. Fantastic, so who would you get the funding from? Really, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm sort of botting money off various people. Our local government, uh, Shire of Yarra Rangers, gave me the money for the two uh, Fabbit homes. And uh, there's a state government, Victorian state government grant, which is going to buy the two uh, Roland 3D scanning and printing machines. Um, I've, I would like a much bigger one. Now I've established the principle and it's all, I've got things that are working. Um, to uh, you know, build something that's a full-scale fabrication lab in collaboration with the people at MIT and have the first one in Australia. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Brian then showed me his vegetable oil-powered car. I drove up here in my vegetable oil-powered car. It's one of my other projects is how to run on renewables. But I wouldn't want to do that every week. (laughs) (laughs) So were you able to drive all the way here without refueling? Um, yeah, I can. That's, it's, it's, it, I can get up here on a tank full, basically. It's a very efficient car. But So do you use vegetable oil? Ten years ago, running on biodiesel, and I would take the vegetable oil from fish and chip shops and I built a biodiesel, small biodiesel plant to make it into biodiesel. And for years, ran my, my car, a single car on that. And that got a bit old after a while, brewing up, doing all the chemistry and <laughs> brewing up biodiesel. And... Uh, also, the, the uh, Howard government provided an incentive to shift out of biodiesel by announcing that henceforth they would be expecting to, to charge us 38 cents a litre for the biodiesel we make. And we had a close look at that. That had the effect of shutting everybody up that was talking about biodiesel because they didn't want the uh, tax office knocking on their door with bills for $5,000. Um, and we looked around and we discovered that vegetable oil is actually non not subject to excise and so people started looking at how do we drive our cars on straight vegetable oil so I've got one car which I've had for a few years which runs on straight vegetable oil and I've just modified this this, this car I've bought uh, that, that one got taken over by my wife I mean it was supposed to be my car but <laughs> she ended up coming up with all sorts of very very good reasons why she should be driving it so I lost that one and uh, so now I've started on this other one and now I've got We've got two cars that run on digital. Um, it's a, it's fairly straightforward. Um, you've got to clean the oil first, so I run it through a five micron, uh, one micron filter, uh, the the fish and chip shop oil or wherever I get it from, and then uh, put it in a tank, and it runs through a, a loop where it gets heated up to a temperature where its viscosity is the same as a as straight uh, diesel and then that gets pumped through the injector into the motor 
the car runs very happily. This one's done 30,000 kilometres on veggie oil and uh, it looks pretty good inside. <laughs> About how much did it cost to convert the car to run yeah, on veggie oil? It's a bit hard to sort of put a figure, you, you don't put your own labour in, but probably about $400. Amazing. Um, and for that, at times, if I get it, uh, get the oil for free, which happens reasonably often, it costs me about uh, a cent a litre to filter it. The filters cost about five bucks, and I can put about four or five hundred litres through a filter before it is irremediably clogged. So that boils down to about a cent a litre. Um, if I have to pay for it, it might be 25 cents or even up to 50 cents a litre if I buy pretty clean stuff. But uh, the bottom line is one cent a litre and maximum 51 cents a litre. So. But you're not going to get everybody running off uh, recycled fish no. and chip oil. No, you can't. That, that is a, that's one of the arguments that people who don't want to think about this issue bring up a lot. Um, of course, uh, a lot of this, this uh, old fish and chip shop oil becomes your cosmetics and detergents and a fair bit of it gets shipped off to China as cooking oil, um, which is quite immoral I think because it's carcinogenic once it's been cooked for a long time um, but uh, there is a very limited amount of this stuff around but the upside of this argument is that um, there is an awful lot of potential oil out there renewable oil completely renewable oil from algae the, um, there's been a lot of stuff in the press lately about um, media about uh, how bad biofuels are because they take food crops and turn them into into fuel and I think I agree with that completely it shouldn't happen it's just bloody immoral frankly but it's also really stupid um, a canola crop will give you about 1300 litres per hectare of arable land uh, if you take a one hectare pond of seawater you can grow enough algae in it in places like Australia to give you 100,000 litres of fuel. Um, why on earth would you grow biofuels on arable land when you can grow them in water? Um, what we need is a serious, serious uh, application of um, thinking to producing large quantities of, of uh, oil for fuel from algae. Um, some species of marine algae are about 80% oil. They store energy in the form of oil in, you know, um, in, their, in their cells and it's uh, very accessible and by pyrolyzing you turn all the algae into, into oil. It's, uh, it's a lay down the there. It's so obvious and so easy. I mean the fossil fuel we're using used to be algae largely. I mean it's all we've done is take out the 20 million, dollar, 20 million years sitting in the ground you know waiting for it to get toxic you know? what do you have to feed the algae um sunlight basically and carbon dioxide but they'll take carbon dioxide from the air but you can actually use the grow algae using the carbon dioxide left over from coal-fired power stations uh there's a, a company um in victoria that is building an algae plant at the hazelwood power station that it's a pilot plant at this stage but they're taking the carbon dioxide from the uh production of the of electricity from coal and putting the carbon dioxide through these algae banks where they're producing the algae from the carbon dioxide. So algae basically live off carbon dioxide and sunlight. It's a photosynthetic process. 
which they're very efficient at. They can be, you know, under good conditions, they'll double their double the number of algae in eight hours. They're, they're pretty busy and industrious little beasts. Um, they make land-based crops and plants look very sluggish by comparison. So algae's the way. So could we be growing algae at home to fuel our tanks? Um, yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to have a go at that. Um, growing the algae, I don't think is the problem. It's pretty easy. Um, apparently, not that tough to do if you can um, just pump the water up into polyethylene tubes, really cheap on your roof, and pump it back down to a tank, or just let it drain back down to a tank on a regular basis. And um, you could probably get away with just bubbling air through it and getting your carbon dioxide. It wouldn't be as efficient as getting nice. Heavy, heavy duty doses of carbon dioxide from a power station, but if you can locate some, some sources of carbon dioxide and link this up to your algae production, it's a really good way of using excess carbon dioxide. But um, you could use air. I mean, there's not much carbon dioxide in air, but you can take the algae will get out what there is. Algae seem to get on quite well without having extra carbon dioxide pumped into them around the world. Probably wouldn't be anywhere near as efficient, but who cares, you know? Um, I'd, I'd like to have a go at that. It's a project that got on the back of my mind about seeing how much algae I can actually produce off my roof or off somebody's roof and just seeing how much I can actually produce and how much I can extract. The extraction process of the oil from the algae is an issue. The best extraction methods are fairly high-tech using hexanes or pyrolysis or other solvents, supercritical carbon dioxide. These things will get all the oil out very efficiently, but they're fairly high-tech processes. I think this, what makes sense on this is, is to do it on a serious scale where you can take advantage of these, these very efficient processes. What I'll probably end up doing is trying to crush out what I can, but, which is not very efficient, but you know, it's, it's worth the effort, it's worth the fun yes. just to see what happens. But Terrific. Um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, maybe the Fab Lab will come up with a solution. <laughs> yeah, maybe it would. And a special thank you to Brian Lennon. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion, if you'd like to put your passion for science on radio, then send us email, diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Jackie Hayes and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, it's Bobby B. Baker, Take Your Oil and Shove It. You know what makes me sick coming home from work and turning on TV? And seeing 60 of our people held captive in our embassy. I mean, we buy them their food, we buy them their planes, give them money left and right. I say enough is enough, let's get tough. Time to stand and fight. Cause they can take their oil and shut it. Let them drink it, let them love it. They can let it rot there in the ground, but they ain't gonna push Uncle Sam around. They can take their I can't stand it I walk to work I don't care how far I ain't pumping that stuff Into my car 
tin horn overseas It's gonna take the American people And bring them to their knees No matter how long the gas line gets No matter what the cost This country is gonna take a stand Show the world who's boss They can take their all and shove it Let them drink it, let them love it They can let it rot there in the ground But they ain't gonna push Uncle Sam around They can take their all and ram it I don't need it, I can't stand it I walk to work, I don't care how far I ain't pumping that stuff into my car Let it rot there in the ground, but they better stop pushing us around.